Will you please turn to Acts chapter 9? Acts chapter 9. And I didn't plan on this as a segue, but, but it's really true that we're talking about how God meets us where we're at. We're going to find that in Acts chapter 9. Because Acts chapter 9 opens with the stunning conversion of a man named Saul. Saul, many of you know, Saul hated the church and ruthlessly pursued those in the church uh, to imprison them and even kill them or see them killed if necessary. In fact, he was on his way to Damascus, to the city of Damascus, for this very reason when to his great surprise and frankly to the surprise of everyone uh, at that time, Saul met Jesus or probably better to say Jesus met Saul. Uh, Jesus met Saul and, and next thing you know, Saul is a child of God. He who once ravaged the church was transformed by God into the most notable church planting missionary slash pastor slash theologian probably ever. And so we talked about God's amazing grace and how God still reaches the most unlikely, most improbable people. And we said that we are these kind of people. We are among these kind of people. Each one of us is a trophy of grace because the victory that God has won in our lives, that He has saved us to Himself by His mercy and, and His love and His grace, this owes entirely to Him. In our fallen state, we have nothing to offer God. Nothing to merit His favor, and yet His favor has come to us in abundance. Has it not? I've titled today's message, The Chosen Life. Because Jesus said of Saul, He is a chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So God rescued Saul from his sin and spiritual darkness. God brought Saul into restored relationship with himself. Then God chose to send Saul out into the world with great purpose. Saul's life was a chosen life because it was God's doing. But also because... It's the best life imaginable. It's a choice life. Nothing is better, nothing, nothing is better than being in right relationship with God and doing that which He has chosen for you. So let's read this passage in Acts beginning... In the second half of verse 19, and we'll read through verse 31. And so the first 19 verses detail Saul's conversion that we considered last week. And then we pick it up in 19b. 
which says this. For some days he, Saul, was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And and has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how... At Damascus, he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So, so Saul went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee... And Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you again for our time we have this morning in your word. We want to thank you for your love this morning that is so sure trustworthy and steadfast. Thank you for the newness of your tender mercies that meet us today. And Lord, even as we've already discussed, we are a people in need of mercy this morning. We need to know that you are with us and that you are for us and that you will meet us and, and walk alongside us and that your love will come to us in in abundance still again today. Lord, we confess that when we think about your love and your grace and your mercy in our lives, we, we hear these words and they do mean something to us, but we don't always or hardly ever maybe really understand the full impact of these words and really the reality to which they speak. And so this morning as we look again at this the life of this man, Saul of Tarsus, and we see how you interacted with him and what you did for him and how those principles apply to our lives even today. I pray that this morning you would minister to each person in this room, each person hearing these words. God, that you would walk by your Holy Spirit down every aisle, tend to each, each soul sitting in each and every seat. Thank you that Nothing is hidden from your sight, that you know every single detail in every single life. And so today, may we each be encouraged to know that you are indeed with us. 
and you are working and perfecting your work in us even today. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to confess to you that I had a hard time arranging my thoughts this week. My thoughts for this message, that's, of course, that's one of the challenges of preaching. There's the, uh, there's the initial challenge of just trying to learn what God is saying through any given text. But then there's the added challenge of, of, uh, of taking those thoughts and trying to arrange them in a way that, that is organized and applicable. And the organized and applicable part was a bit difficult for me. Uh, but as I was reflecting on this text throughout the week, there were three words that I just found kept coming to mind. And so finally, I decided to arrange my thoughts under these three words, under each of these three words. And the first word is transformation. Transformation. Verse 21 says that people were amazed by Saul because of the obvious change that had taken place in his life. Uh, is not this the man, they said, who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon the name of Jesus? In fact, did Saul not come to Damascus to arrest such people and bring them in chains back to Jerusalem for trial and presumably execution. You see, something happened to Saul that transformed his entire life. And that something was his conversion to Christ. When you meet the king of all creation personally, the Lord of the entire universe, the one by whom and through whom and for whom all things exist, uh, and you are saved to Him and saved by Him, you are never the same. In biblical terms, you are born again as a child of God. So real is the change in your life that it's literally like a new birth. When by God's grace, the reality of Jesus Christ meets saving faith in your heart, a new life comes into being. For if anyone is in Christ, we're told, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away, Behold, the new has come. And one of the most common, most effective ways by which God continues to reach and redeem people out from their lost and sinful condition is through the changed lives of those whom He has already reached and redeemed. So it doesn't surprise us to find Saul proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues of Damascus. He had been changed. And he knew it, and he wanted others to know it too, to know that they could be transformed by grace as well. You know, there is a wonderful simplicity in new believers 
to not overthink things. A childlike simplicity that maybe, maybe some of us older believers can recapture. My daughter used to ask her babysitters and just random people in the grocery store if they knew Jesus, which led for some very awkward interactions, but very wonderful. My son has been known to raise some eyebrows at school because he is very open about his faith in God. When I was a new Christian, I wanted everyone to know. I'd come into a relationship with God that brought order and clarity to everything else in my life. I had been transformed, and like Saul, I knew that the same Jesus who saved me could save others also. People were amazed as they heard Saul saying that Jesus is the Son of God, meaning like God, meaning one with God and therefore sharing deity as God. Jesus is both human and divine. When he walked the earth and lived among us, he modeled the perfect human life that we are intended for. And when he gave his life, he died not merely as a man, but as God's divine Son. Not for any uh, corruption or sin on his part, but for our sinfulness instead. And so the late James Montgomery Boyce put it this way, saying, If Jesus were a mere man, even if he were a sinless man, his death could only have availed for himself. But Jesus is not merely a man. He is a man. He had to be a man to die. He had to take on human flesh. At the same time, however, being God as well as man, he died as God and thus accomplished what God alone could accomplish. Therefore, as, as Saul also made clear, Jesus is the Christ, meaning the Messiah that God had promised long ago, the same Messiah that people had been expecting. Christ, by the way, is the Greek word. Messiah is the Hebrew word. And so, so we have here, we have Saul presenting Jesus both as Lord and as Savior, explaining who he was, Lord, and what he came to do, save. He is the Son of God, which emphasizes his lordship over all, and he is the long-expected Christ, which stresses his saving power. Now, church, both are equally important. You cannot accept Jesus as Savior only. By the way, very important that we, that we communicate this clearly when we're talking to others. That you cannot accept Jesus as Savior only. There must also be a yielding of your life to his lordship. And when you receive him as Lord, he then becomes your savior too. And when, and when, like Saul, a person comes to know Jesus in these ways, both as Lord and as savior, your life will be 
wonderfully and undeniably transformed by grace. The second word that comes to mind from this passage is the word confrontation. Because Saul was suddenly confronted by the reality that not everyone reacts positively to Christ in your life. Verses 22 and 29 reveal that Saul was confounding the Jews in Damascus and disputing the Hellenists or the Greek-speaking Jews in Jerusalem, which led to hostility from both groups. The Jewish leaders in Damascus, particularly the religious leaders who opposed Christianity, plotted against Saul and, in fact, wanted to kill Saul. And similarly, the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem likewise wanted to end Saul's life. Saul's conversion to Christ made him a marked man in the eyes of those opposed to Christ. Now remember, Saul was once one of these very people. Before conversion, he was adamantly, vehemently, aggressively opposed to anyone who followed Jesus. The same people who were now opposing Saul were once his friends and associates. So Saul was confronted by the reality of opposition and the loss of certain relationships. And there are people, church, there are people sitting around you right now who have suffered a similar loss. People whose faith in the Lord has caused other people in their lives to cut them off and or confront them in, a, in an aggressive or hostile manner. People who, once, who were once close friends, even family members, people who shared similar backgrounds and interests, people who said they loved you and had your back. I'm just curious, by a show of hands, how many of you have suffered the loss of a relationship simply because of your Christian beliefs? <clears throat> to align your life with the way of Jesus may mean opposition from those who want nothing to do with Jesus. It may mean the loss of a relationship or the loss of an entire friend group. I know someone who recently posted something about his Christian faith on social media and immediately he became the object of scorn and ridicule by his own so-called friends. Even Jesus' earthly brothers mocked and made fun of him. One of his closest companions, one of the twelve, betrayed him. And perhaps his closest friend, humanly speaking, denied ever knowed him. And so to Saul and to all who have faced similar losses, Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward 
is great in heaven. Notice, though, sadly, that not only was Saul opposed by those outside the church, he was also confronted by withdrawal and suspicion from other believers in the church. According to verse 26, when he attempted to join the other disciples in Jerusalem, they withdrew from him in fear and skepticism, refusing to believe that he had indeed become a Christian. They knew only the old Saul, the before Christ Saul, the man who terrorized and ravaged the church. And quite possibly, if you think about it, there may have been people in that very congregation whose friends and family members were arrested and imprisoned by Saul prior to his Damascus Road conversion. So when Saul shows up in Jerusalem, the other believers are wary of him and suspicious of his motives. I want to ask, have you ever been suspicious of another believer's motives? And what effect, what effect do you think that your suspicion has on them and on the unity God intends for us in the church? When your motives are judged by others who don't have all the facts, how does that affect you? You see, the judging of one's motives leads to suspicion, and suspicion leads to division, and division destroys community. But since God can reach and transform even the most unlikely, most improbable person, shouldn't the church of all places be a place where our shared celebration of grace in Christ brings forgiveness and reconciliation even on the human level? After all, we all, we all, we all have pasts we're not proud of. We all have said things, we have done things, we have thought things that we shouldn't have. We each know the kind of people we've been at times, right? I sure know I know the kind of person I have been at times. And how reliant upon grace we therefore are. And so can we not extend that same grace toward others as we have opportunity? And isn't that what we see of Barnabas here in this passage? Barnabas was well respected in the church, a, a pillar actually in that congregation. We were first introduced to Barnabas in, in Acts chapter 4 where we learn that his name means son of encouragement. And so it's no wonder that here in Acts chapter 9, we see Barnabas encouraging the church by taking Saul under his wing and bringing him to the apostles and vouching for him. And that's all it took because verse 28 says that from that time forward, Saul went in and out among them. There was relationship now. 
And I just want to say, uh, from this verse, I just want to say, uh, we need more Barnabases, right? In the church, in the church, including our church. Barnabases, every church needs people who take it upon themselves to be bridge builders and division destroyers. People who combat suspicion and the judging of motives among members of the congregation. People who come alongside others and are willing to vouch for them and even put their own reputation on the line. People who can bring encouragement to the whole assembly so that true Christian community can be experienced and celebrated by all people who are building community for the cause of Christ, as we like to say here at East Parkway Church. Transformation, confrontation, and then the third word worth considering this morning is the word preparation. And what I mean by this, we'll have to we'll have to we'll have to read between the lines a bit. We'll have to read with the perspective of the whole scope of the New Testament. But what I mean by this is that when we read this passage alongside other New Testament passages, particularly Galatians chapter 1, we discover that months, even years pass by as we move from verse 20 to verse 30. And during that span of time, and even during the, the time between verse 30 and the next mention of Saul in chapter 11, it seems that God is preparing Saul for what was coming next. A global ministry that begins in chapter 13 and continues through the rest of the book of Acts. Verses 23 and 26 and 30 provide identifiable markers on the timeline of Saul's life. Verse 23 begins by saying, When many days had passed. Here the writer is, is describing the reaction in Damascus towards Saul, but what could easily be missed is that what Luke refers to as many days was in fact a span of about three years. And in that time, following verse 22... Saul had actually left Damascus for Arabia. His time in Arabia was seemingly under the radar, just him and God. And then he returned to Damascus to encounter the opposition mentioned here in Acts chapter 9 before escaping the city with the help of his friends. And so by the time Saul entered Jerusalem in verse 26, we have this span of roughly three years that had gone by. And later, when in verse 30, the disciples in Jerusalem send Saul to Tarsus, uh, which is in the province of Cilicia, approximately another ten years pass before we hear any mention of Saul again. Now, again, I know this is Difficult for us to see here in Acts, so I, I want for you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. 
We're going to come back to Acts, but I want, to, I want us to read, I will read Saul's own, his description of his own experience during this time. So we're going to read Acts chapter, or I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 uh, through the end of the chapter. And, we're, and, and Saul here is going to be talking about what we've just read from Acts chapter 9. This is his own testimony. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the uh, traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, In order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. And here it is. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, I went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that is Peter, and I remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. And then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. And we know that after about 10 years, Barnabas went to to Tarsus to find Saul. They then spent about a year together in Antioch. And so a total of 14 years passed from the time of Saul's conversion to the time when he and Barnabas returned to Jerusalem and eventually set off on their first missionary journey, 14 years. And during those 14 years, Saul lived a relatively obscure, relatively unnoticed existence, but it was a precious season in Saul's life because God was preparing him for what was coming next. The takeaway, loved ones, is do not waste your times of preparation for what God has planned for you. Do not waste your times of preparation for what God has planned for you. For 14 years, Saul lived in waiting. Jesus had said to Ananias that Saul was his chosen instrument to carry his name before Gentiles and Jews alike, even to the king's of the earth and surely Ananias must have mentioned this to Saul in those early days in Damascus yet here was Saul 14 years in still wondering and waiting for that divinely appointed purpose to come 
to fruition. Waiting on God isn't easy, is it? Partly because we don't know how long the wait will last. When you're in it, you don't know how long the wait will will last. And, And frankly, you're not even sure what exactly you're waiting for. But God's plans are always redemptive and his timing is always spot on. However stuck we may feel at times, however ineffective we may feel, however confused or full of doubt, there is more going on. There is more at stake than we even realize. Abraham and Sarah waited 25 years before Isaac and all that Isaac represented was conceived and born. Joseph was 13 years in Egyptian servitude and imprisonment before God exalted him to the king's right hand and used him to spare at least two nations from starvation. Moses was 40 years in the land of Midian before God sent him to deliver the people of Israel from Egypt and lead them to the promised land. He was an old man. David, through no fault of his own, was five to ten years on the run from King Saul before he finally ascended the throne as as promised. And we could go on. History is littered with the stories of men and women whose lives are marked in such ways. Even Jesus lived 30 years in relative obscurity before beginning that three-year period of public ministry that changed the course of humankind forever. You see, this was a time, what we're reading of the, here in Acts, in those times in Arabia, and those times in Tarsus, this was a time of refinement for Saul. A time of learning to walk with Jesus, learning to trust and follow Jesus. In fact, New Testament scholars believe that Saul's visions of heaven and his thorn in the flesh that we read about in 2 Corinthians 12, that 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 all occurred during this time of relative obscurity. It was during this 14-year period when he came, when Saul came to to rely on the sufficiency of God's divine grace. And even as we talked about this morning, it was during this time when, when, when Saul or the Apostle Paul came to make that tremendous statement that, therefore I will boast in all my weaknesses. For when I am weak, he is strong. It was all during this time of waiting. Three years. Jesus used every experience, every relationship, every interaction and situation in Saul's life to prepare him for what he'd face later on to prepare him for the places he'd go, to prepare him for the people he'd meet. Three years in Arabia, another ten years in Tarsus. And then, 
Then there arose in Antioch an awakening of sorts, and God sent Barnabas to get Saul and bring him back, and, and the rest is history. Ray Steadman comments, There isn't a person on the face of the planet today who hasn't been touched by the ministry of Saul of Tarsus in some way. So here's the point. There is divine purpose. I I want you to hear this, church. There is divine purpose in whatever place or season you find yourself today. Whether you are in a season of spiritual training or you are in active engagement with the world around the cause of Christ, or you are in your later years of life like Abraham and Moses, all of it, all of it is immensely valued by God and used to prepare you for what he has planned next. All of it. The prophet Isaiah would then ask us, Why do you say, My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Why do you? Why do we say that? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Oh, and graciously and lovingly and mercifully, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases their strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. Oh, but they, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. Oh, they shall walk and not be faint. If you are in Christ, like Saul was at at this time, you too have these promises. For you too have been transformed by grace and you are still being transformed, right? And though confronted by opposition at times or in times of waiting on God, you too are being divinely prepared for what He has purposed next in your life. Yours, yours, yours is a chosen life. 
because God has graciously invaded your heart and therefore it's a choice life. It's the very best life imaginable. And so, dear East Parkway Church, let us, each one of us, let us live it day by day in joyful and thankful obedience and faith for his name's sake. Amen. God, what can we say to these things but thank you? Your kindness knows no limit. Your love knows no bounds. Thank you that no matter where we are today, uh, young and at the beginning of our walk with Christ or, or in, the middle of, uh, in the middle of life itself or maybe toward the, the later seasons of life, no matter where we are today, you are still working in each life, preparing, transforming, readying us for what you've purposed next. So give us all the grace necessary to wait with patience and praise. And then give us the courage to step out in faith and do that which you've chosen us to do. For your name's sake and for the good of your people, we pray. Amen. Amen.